This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are here with Rabbi Eli Melech Goldberg. How are you, Rabbi Goldberg? Thank God. Everybody calls me Rabbi G, so that's so much easier. Rabbi G, I, on campus where I work, they call me Rabbi K. So I guess we don't have much faith in our Jewish constituents. <laughs> we only give them a letter. Good to know that only three letters separate us. So that's good. <laughs> so Rabbi Goldberg, as we do with all of our guests, all of whom really have incredible and, and fascinating journeys, professional and personal, we'd like to start at the beginning and get a little sense of where you're coming from, uh, a little bit of context for all of the things that uh, we'll discuss later. So tell us a little bit about your history, your background. Well, I'm the founder of Kids Geeking Cancer. I'm also a clinical assistant professor in pediatrics at Wayne State University School of Medicine. And I left a rabbinical position at the Young Israel of Southfield after 20 years to teach karate, which is not like most people leaving a synagogue. I always tell people that every clergy member has to learn how to break his board. So I guess <laughs> I it a little bit more literally than others. <laughs> but uh, we've developed this program, Kids Kicking Cancer, which now reaches over 4,000 children in 56 locations in five countries by really a very personal story. Uh, my first teacher in the world of the power of Kids Kicking Cancer was our daughter. At uh, age one, she was diagnosed with leukemia, which today is a very treatable pediatric illness. It wasn't the same thing in 1981. She was an amazing little girl at two years old at the UCLA Bone Marrow Transplant Center. She would tell the five-year-old kids in the clinic not to cry and tell the doctors, no medication today, please. Unfortunately, none of those children survived in those years from bone marrow transplants in the early days. And I found myself, a number of years later, directing a camp, a very well-known camp for kids with cancer in New York, called Camp Simcha from the Chai Lifeline. And it was at Camp Simcha and the Chai Lifeline that I learned this very important message of kids kicking cancer. And that is that no matter what you face in your life, you can breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. I found this five-year-old child in the clinic who was having his port accessed for his chemotherapy. This was a child who was being held down by two big nurses. A third nurse has a large syringe to plunge into his chest. The child was screaming so much because of the fear of the pain of what was happening that it was so counterintuitive to me. You know, in the old days, we used to teach in medical school that there's a pain center in the brain. Today, we know it's not true. There's a whole entire neural matrix, which means that if a person's afraid, if they're angry, they're sad, there's no purpose to what they're going through. The pain level actually shoots up. So this kid's about to have a horrific experience. He was so afraid. He was so upset. And he was screaming so loud. I just walked in on the scene and I said, wait. And they all stopped. I, even the kids stopped screaming. And they looked at me and I have a clue what I was going to say next. And I just said to this child, you know, I'm a black belt. Can I teach you some karate? So the nurses were happy to leave. And the kid looked at me like I was the governor or just stayed his execution. And I said, you want me to teach you some karate? I almost jumped off the table and explained to him in the martial arts you learn that pain's a message you don't have to listen to. You get breathing this amazing chi, this energy, and push out the pain. Watch me. 
And five minutes later, we're doing a simple Tai Chi breathing techniques. And 20 minutes later, they pulled the needle out of his chest and he looked up at the nurse and he said, did you do it yet? And that's when Kids Kicking Cancer was born. So I began a pilot program at Children's Hospital Michigan with 10 children. And after a while, I began to realize from the kids that giving them a sense of purpose was so important. So we started a mantra, which we use in the martial arts, called Power, Peace, Purpose, that you can breathe in this amazing energy. It doesn't matter if you call it chi, ki, neshama, soul. You can bring in this tremendous energy and push out pain and fear and anger. Rabbi Goldberg, it's, it's incredible that you had sort of this epiphany while you know, working in a camp for these, these very sick children. It sounds like, though, you had some background in the martial arts. So can you take us back a little bit before all this began? What was your background that led up to this? You said you were a pulpit rabbi. Was the martial arts something you did as a hobby on the side? Was it your way of getting rid of uh, stress <laughs> as a rabbi? Sort of what prepared you for all this, both rabbinically and as a martial artist? Well, you know, I grew up in a small eastern seaport community called the Bronx. <laughs> so I wasn't a tall guy growing up and I haven't caught up much since. So it was really kind of self-defense in the beginning. And then when I became a pulpit rabbi, I knew I really loved the martial arts. Just not the type of guy to play racquetball to deal with stress. And I needed a, an appointment with a, uh, with a partner. It was funny, in Detroit, my sparring partner was an Irish television entertainer. <laughs> You know, he would tell Jewish jokes, I would tell Irish jokes, and then we'd go beat each other up. <laughs> a lot of fun. But the, the key to the martial arts is really taking control. It's the power of the mind. And it's not unusual that the word in Hebrew for breath, nishima, is the same as nishama, your soul. So to me, it was a way of really connecting, becoming solid. It helped my davening, helped praying. It just made me much more focused as a person. I didn't go around the synagogue breaking boards, but I did use it as an opportunity to become more and more effective as a person. Was it something that you employed in your conventional rabbinic work? Yeah, you know, because I did a lot of counseling. So I was able to teach people focus based on the mind concepts of the martial arts. And 90% of what we do with the children is meditation. And so to, to have that basis, Really, the martial arts centers you into your soul, no matter what you call it. And feeling that power, you know, we are constantly getting mugged. We're constantly getting attacked. But the greatest adversary is not outside of ourselves, it's inside of ourselves. So today, when I teach in the medical world, I teach neurophysiology, and we do functional MRIs to show the effectiveness of our program on the children, even more than mindfulness or yoga. We've cross-trained with yoga people, frankly but I find yoga a bit of a stretch. <laughs> the ability to use our techniques in a significant way is really the key to allow the children to have this power. So power, peace, purpose means that they can pull in this energy. Peace means that they can push out pain, fear, anger, stress. And if you ask the thousands of kids we've worked with, what's your purpose? They allow to teach the world. As every one of our kids becomes a teacher, and that theme we began to develop. We brought them to other kids, kids with obesity issues and other pain issues, and created a hero circle where our children can influence other children. And then we said, you know, if, if we could teach children, we could teach adults. We'll just talk slower. <laughs> and we started bringing our kids to companies. 
So I brought a group of kids a number of years ago from Sloan Kettering to teach Pfizer executives how to breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. And Pfizer in Italy called us three days later, would I come to Rome to teach Pfizer Italy how to do our trademark breath break? I was really excited to do that. Pfizer got so into the program, they introduced me to Bambino Gesù Hospital, Baby Jesus Hospital, which is the Vatican Children's Hospital, which I thought like is really super cool, Ari, that an Orthodox rabbi needed permission from the Pope's office to teach an Eastern meditative technique to Vatican children. <laughs> they gave it, it's a whole circle. So we're, we're now in 10 hospitals in Italy, and we began our first three hospitals in, in Africa just a few months ago. Incredible. So how did you get in, you know, from rabbinics to begin with? It sounds like you moved into the, the High Lifeline camp, Camp Simcha. Was that a result of your daughter's illness at that time? Like, how did that experience impact what was going on in your life at, at that point? Actually, our daughter had passed away in 1982. In about 1988 or 89, Rabbi Simcha Scholar came to me. He was starting Camp Simcha and I thought it was a great idea. I know what the kids went through. I know what the parents went through. He was raising money in Detroit. So he comes into my office, and rather than just look for a donation or look for me to help, which I was more than happy to do, the rabbi asked me, um, I'd like you to direct the camp. I said to him, you, you've just got to be crazy because every little girl will be our daughter. There's no way we can go into an environment like that. But he's a great salesman, and we tried it out. And then we loved it. And I I ran Camp Semcha for 12 years. And it's at that same time, I was getting much more heavily involved into the martial arts. And ergo, the entire process began. Had you known Rabbi Scholar beforehand? No, I had never met him beforehand. But we became very, very close. And the Chai Lifeline's a great institution. And we worked closely together. In the beginning, I wasn't focused on growing my own organization. And the reason that I, I began Kids Kicking Cancer as an organization is because I felt that this could be brought to all children all over the planet, lower their pain. And thank God we've been able to publish our pain studies in peer-reviewed medical journals. And across the globe, I lecture to pediatricians about how to use this energy to actually lower pain. And even if, God forbid, we deal with end-of-life care, supplying purpose is so extraordinary. You know, I wrote a book, if I could advertise my book in the podcast, (laughs) and the name of the book is A Perfect God Created an Imperfect World Perfectly. It's 30 life lessons from kids kicking cancer. You can see it on Amazon. Just look up Elimelech Goldberg. There aren't too many Elimelech Goldbergs on Amazon. (laughs) It's 30 life stories from the children of kids kicking cancer. What's cool about the book is that In the back, there are 30 meditations, and each meditation has its own QR code. And I tell the reader, if you don't know what a QR code is, here's a web link. And if you don't know what a web link is, you probably have no stress in your life. You don't need the book. (laughs) But every time somebody pulls down one of the audio meditations and listens to it, the numbers go up in front of the children, letting them know that they're inspiring the planet. Wow. That's really the key to the program, that power they could bring in this light and push out pain, fear, and anger and create that peace, lower their pain, take control. But when you ask them what's their purpose, they allow to teach the world. So even children at the end of their lives have to know that there was a purpose for why they lived. So we give black belts to children in amazing ceremonies 
sometimes in ICU rooms and sometimes in gyms in front of hundreds of their family and friends. Remember giving a black belt to a child and the black belt being bored of the child's name and his name was Brandon. On the other end, the words master teacher because every one of our children become teachers to teach the world. And this little boy was so weak, he couldn't even sit up in his chair. When it came time for him to get his black belt, Brandon stood up. And I can't begin to describe to you. He had told me that he wanted everyone to know that he was getting his black belt because he defeated his cancer, because he wasn't afraid, he wasn't angry. If anything, he was more connected to God and the people around him. And so after giving that message, this child stood up, and as they're putting the black belt on him, 300 people stood up to give him a standing ovation. Unfortunately, he was buried in his black belt just a few days later. But the idea that he had a purpose in his life and that he's teaching the world, he's still teaching. Unfortunately, even though cancer is a very treatable pediatric disease today, we deal with 4,000 kids, we still lose too many kids and way too many black belts. But everyone has to know that he or she has a purpose in their lives. People ask me all of the time, how do you deal with children dying? It's a simple answer. I cry. You know, each child that I know, and unfortunately, as the program's growing, I don't get to meet every single child. But each child that I know, and even the ones I don't, are part of our family. And so I cry. It's my daughter all over again. But I can tell you that the greatest tragedy, Ari, is not the death of a child. Some of these children have had such an impact on this world, and that's forever. To me, the greatest tragedy is to be with someone who's 95 years old and then have a clue why he or she lived. That's tragic. You had mentioned that this kind of started almost accidentally or anecdotally in a certain sense when you walked into a, uh, you know, a young child's room and responded to his pain. Obviously, the organization has grown immensely from there. It wasn't even an organization. It was just an idea. I'm curious. It sounds like you've transitioned to a scenario in which you have gained acclaim or at least credibility within the mainstream medical community. How have you done that? Do you have a background in the sciences? Did you pursue training in that regard? How did you convince sort of hardened, traditional-minded doctors, physicians, and especially those at the top of their field. I mean, you're talking about world-class hospitals. Did you simply say, you know, trust me, give it a try? I mean, how did you break into those very closed environments? Well, it was really simple. I, I met with them, each one privately, and told them I was a black belt. <laughs> As you know, the truth of the matter is, when I first started, some of my colleagues in the medical world told me that don't get too much into the breath work. It's a little heebie-jeebie when I give my lectures. Right. Today, there isn't a hospital in the world, and I give grand rounds across the globe, there isn't a hospital in the world that doesn't have someone specifically trained in breath work. The evidence that we could use breathing, which is part of the autonomic nervous system, that's the stuff that happens by itself, it's the only part that we can so easily control. And every time a person has a stress response, especially the long-term adrenal gland shooting out these fancy glucocorticoids that can kill you, but don't worry about that because that's bad for you. But that chronic stress response always makes your muscles tighter. So we teach people how to do a very specific breath where in the exhale, you're relaxing your muscles. It's like a wave of breath. We've trademarked it called the breath break, B-R-A-K-E. And so every time your body senses your muscles relax, it knows that there's nobody running after you to kill you. So it goes from what's called sympathetic fight or flight 
to parasympathetic relaxation response. So because we're very evidence-based and we're able to evidence the impact of what we're doing, and I've always been very heavily involved in science, I fake the medical stuff. <laughs> so no degree or anything in that regard. I don't have an MD, but I do have a professorship in medical school because we're able to teach. I actually give CMEs, the continued medical education credits for doctors right. and nurses, et cetera, et cetera. And many companies have actually filmed me to give CME credits because everything we do is evidence-based. And did you commission any of these studies or did you just aggregate them? How have you collected the evidence? We, we had a grant from the CDC a number of years ago that allowed us to create a, a pain study. And now we're using functional MRIs where you can actually see the neural pathways that are being addressed for the children. So the evidence is extraordinary. And there's an amalgam of evidence in, in so many different disciplines that using the power of the mind, you know, when, when we get angry, when we get upset, when we get stressed. So it messes up your immunological system. That's first it cascades up, but that's just for a few moments, then shoots down. That's why people have stress, they get sick. It's just very well known. There's a correlation because there's a repression of the immunological system with the glucocorticoids over a very brief amount of time. And that lingers. You know, in other words, it goes up briefly, then shoots down. It's almost like the body's preparing for fight or flight and maybe being wounded, but it doesn't maintain that immunological response long. It shoots down within 20 minutes or so. And then the ongoing chronic stress keeps us in a place where our body's not prepared to deal with the onslaught of microbes, of disease, tumorous cells, et cetera, et cetera. And that's why people get stressed, they get sick. Teaching people how to identify, become observant of the tightness in their body and to use the breath to relax the muscles and the exhale. We've trademarked this concept of breath break, just that term. I get into fight with people in the airport all the time. I saw you breathing, we have the trademark. I wasn't breathing, you were breathing. It's very hard to litigate that. But teaching people how to do these simple techniques is very, very simple. And so we, we actually go to these companies, as I mentioned, 97% of the adults we've trained and surveyed describe it as having a profound impact on their lives. Wow. And now we're working with a study with a grant from the state of Michigan to see how our breath break and our treatment and connecting the people to videos of the children can lower opioid usage. Huh. Where we are also in the process of trademarking the term pain extraction. Rather than pain distraction, we actually get people to visualize, when we're creating a VR tool, get people to visualize the pain and with their breath to break holes in the pain and therefore to lower the impact on the, of the pain. Have you done work with this in the, uh, in the addictions world, in the addictions community? So that's what we're just starting at this January, God willing, with methadone and suboxone clinics and in Boston with veterans in three facilities that are residence facilities of people who have PTSD and an onslaught of other comorbidity issues like pain and who happen to be drug addicts to see how they can use their breath, use their mind to breathe in the light. And, but every time they do it, they see the message going back to our children to incentivize it that you can help a child in pain. And the beauty of that message, Ari, is that it's all true. There's nothing disingenuous in it. Children will have less pain when they know that they're teaching the soldiers how to breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. 
how are you trying to bring this, can you bring this to sort of the mainstream, meaning not the community of pain and maybe not necessarily executives, but is there, is there a way that this can be accessed by sort of a general population? We can have anybody access this. The book is filled with exercises and, and meditations. And our goal is to eventually introduce this into curricula in schools. Kids have so much stress today. And we have the capability of bringing children who are diseased, have cancer, et cetera, to teach schools, get a standing ovation from the children, have the children go back, teach this to their parents in school, and have this whole hero circle. So we have a few grants out to try to make that happen locally and in Israel, where we're looking for partners because what we do is so simple. The impact is so extraordinary. And as we allow children with all types of disease syndrome to give, have purpose, it changes those kids. But the kids in the schools, and we've begun to do this in some of the schools in Israel in particular, where there were children who were suffering in the school. We had one school in Rehovot in which they had two students, both of them very, very ill. One of them just unfortunately passed away. But before she passed away, we were working in that school and we brought these two children. It was all schools falling apart. It was a very small school and they were like all falling apart. Two kids, both very sick and they're a small community. We worked with those children, those two kids and their siblings at home, taught them how to breathe in the light and blow out the darkness to do the meditations, then brought them back to their classrooms, then brought them back to the entire school. So the entire school is doing power, peace, purpose. The entire school is doing the breath work. The children became teachers. It gave such strength to the teachers, to the principal, etc., that even after one of the children passed away, the whole school is still doing this. And they're just holding on to her life. Giving people purpose, allowing these children to have had purpose, influencing their lives is really the part of the Jewish people that talks about light. The beauty of light is you send out a light into the universe. It's always there. The ability of that energy to continue is really the story of every living soul. When we could find that internal light despite the darkness, that's greatness. Let me share with you, Ari, if I may. There's a group in Michigan. They're actually all over the globe. They're called the Optimists. It's like the Lions, the Rotary. They're called the Optimists. I'm sure there's a Jewish group called the Pessimists. <laughs> Those are optimists with experience. <laughs> so they were making a beautiful party for us. And at the end of the party, one of our kids who had just not yet turned 11, Bernard, he's being pushed to the front by his twin sister, Brittany. Bernard asked the optimist MC for the microphone. And in a loud voice, he says, hi, my name is Bernard. And for all 400 people in the room stopped and looked at that little boy in the center of the room. And with a very beautiful smile, he said, I just want to thank you, Optimus. You made the most beautiful party for us. I want to thank Kids Kicking Cancer. You guys are a family. I want to share with you what they teach us in Kids Kicking Cancer. And that is no matter what we go through in our lives, we can breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. And it proceeds to demonstrate how we lift up our body with our breath break and push it out and push out all darkness and pain and fear. And we can see it and push it out. And then again, with the most beautiful smile, he looks at the audience and he says, remember, no matter what you face in your life, you can breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. And then they gave me the microphone. I had to take a breath break because we all knew that Bernard's mom ran away when he was a little baby. 
His dad died when he was eight years old. His uncle died when he was nine years old. And that was the year he was diagnosed with an operable brain tumor that was slowly stealing any movement from his body. So with one good arm holding the microphone and the most beautiful smile, he's telling everyone, no matter what you face in your life, you can breathe in the light and blow out the darkness. So when I finally was able to talk, I told the optimist there, I said, you know, Bernard just defined optimism. But the definition of optimism is not that everything's going to be great. Optimism means we can respond to everything with greatness. And that's what I shared with the optimists. And that's what the children of Kids Kicking Cancer teach every day. And I can tell you particularly, that's what I've learned in the context of Jewish history and in the mandate of what it means to be a Jew. You know, the, the word Hebrew, Ivri, means you're coming over from the other side, Eva Hayarde. There's always these great channels, these great rivers in our way. I can share with you that it was on a Friday morning it was the Torah reading of Parshat Vayera. And I was teaching my students at Yeshua University in Los Angeles, these are college-age students, about the binding of Isaac. And I asked my students, what does it really mean? I mean, God himself comes to you and says, take your son and left nothing to imagination. What do you say back to God? You know, we'll do lunch, my people call your people. Those are not phrases yet created nor appropriate to the master of the universe. So I focus my students on the text. Initially, Isaac, who was 37 years old, had no clue where he was going. He thought it was a party. It was a festival, a chance to sacrifice to God, which had been unusual and very festive. And the Torah says, they both walked up as one. That was the power of that moment, that Abraham was able, because of his perfect faith, to walk up that mountain singing and dancing. And then Isaac turned around to Abraham and said, oh, one second, Dad. You know, here's the fire, here's the wood, all of those things available at the Home Depot of Mesopotamia. Where's the sela ola? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? Not the easiest thing to get on the top of a mountain. And Abram answered, sela ola bini, you're it, my son. And the Bible says, and they both walked up together as one. It repeats that phrase, Isaac didn't miss a beat. And that's what I told my students that morning, Friday morning in 1981 that somehow we get called to walk up these mountains and you have to find the strength to do that singing and dancing. And then I got a call in the office. These were, this might be scary for you younger listeners. There was a time that phones only sat on desks and on walls, but don't worry, it's never coming back again. <laughs> and my wife calling in a very impassioned plea saying, we've got to take our daughter back to the doctor. We had been in the doctor at Wednesday. She was lethargic, sick. He said, it's a bad virus, it's going around, she'll be okay in a few days. Two days later, my wife was calling and said, there's something really wrong, I know it, there's something really wrong. I tried to protest, it was uh, Friday afternoon, or Shabbat, and you know, it's a, no, we're going back to the doctor. We went back to the doctor. An hour before the Sabbath, I got that one phone call, and unfortunately, there's no one on the planet who's immune to that one phone call that can change our lives. It was her pediatrician in a very not, reassuring voice saying we have to rule out leukemia. Today, pediatric leukemia is a very treatable pediatric illness. It wasn't the same thing, you know, 35 years ago. Friday, we went back to the hospital. Shabbos morning at exactly 10 o'clock, the technician comes in 
and says, they want another picture of the spleen. Could you bring your daughter downstairs? And I ended up carrying her downstairs to the x-ray room. This was before MRIs and CAT scans. And he turns around to me and he says, we're a little short staffed today. Do you mind just fastening her arms and legs to the table? I'm looking at the clock on the wall. Everyone in Los Angeles is reading at that moment about Abraham binding the arms and legs of Isaac to the altar. I knew Avram Avinu didn't use Velcro, but everything else felt the same. And I remembered what I told my students the day before, not even 24 hours earlier, that no matter what you face in your life, you have to walk up that mountain singing and dancing. It's a lot easier to give a class. But I've learned from Bernard Johnson and from the kids and Kids Kicking Cancer, thousands of them, that we can breathe in the light and blow out the darkness, no matter how deep the darkness that surrounds us. And we do it, as the kids tell us, we end up teaching the world. And so it's been such a privilege for me to be with these children and to continue to expand and to look for more partners every place. We're now in 56 locations, but it's not enough. 4,000 kids should be 40,000. As we find the right partners to bring this more and more across the globe, we know that we can create a light that only these children can author in such a way because their darkness is so great. And when they do that, that's going to illuminate the entire planet. In closing, Rabbi, you mentioned the development of the organization and how you've gotten to this point. And of course, you'd like to get to that next point of of exponential growth. I'm just so curious how you were able to grow this from, again, you showing up in a single child's room to an organization that is global, that has impacted inner city populations and corporate executives. And of course, thousands of kids with cancer. That must have been just a remarkable infrastructural (laughs) challenge and yourself of the organization has now outgrown your ability to meet all the kids. How have you developed this enterprise while preserving the essence of what it is and yet without losing its its power and its its magic? I have to tell you that we do have a very well-developed model. We have written curricula. We have all types of training processes, et cetera, et cetera. But I can absolutely promise you that everything intelligent that we do, we've learned from the children. And so between the extraordinary power of these children and the blessing of God, because frankly, you know, I turned around in wonderment when I was working in Balaguanath Hospital in Soweto, and you go into these barracks and there's child after child after child after child. And I asked the docs there, I said, do me a favor, I want you to show me your children we're having the greatest pain episodes at the moment. And I saw kids with amputations and end-of-life care, and in 10, 15 minutes, their pain's going down in half, and they're smiling, and they're going power, peace, purpose. I turned around to the, to the wall, especially when one young lady had terrible cellulitis. She couldn't move her arm. And I can tell you that in 10 minutes later, she said she didn't feel any pain. I turned around to the wall, knowing that I'm in this dark place, in the bowels of Africa, where these kids are too poor to even have their parents with them. So they're all alone facing the most inconceivable things. And I have the privilege of bringing this light to these children. I turned around to the wall and of course I thought of my daughter and I started crying. But I thought of the privilege because this is something that is much bigger than than Rabbi G or whatever initial you'd like to call me. It's so much bigger, it's so much greater. 
It's really a pathway that God has given me. And I continue to walk on this pathway with my daughter and with the children that I've been privileged to give black belts to as master teachers. So as we grow, as we bring this to the rest of the globe, and of course, I've been very fortunate that we've had some partners to come along who have helped us to fund the program. And Who, who have been some of those partners? Well, we've been blessed here in, in Michigan with the Children's Hospital and Michigan Foundation, Pfizer in Italy. We've produced this for companies like Walmart and other companies who have come in little bits and pieces. But frankly, the greatest people are people who've heard these podcasts, who hear these presentations, and they, get out, they call up and they say, I want to get involved. So even though I left the active rabbinate, my greatest joy in life is to hear myself speak. I'll repeat that. <laughs> even though I left the active rabbinate, my greatest joy in life is to hear myself speak. So I do it a lot. And thank God people come forward. They realize that there are all these types of organizations out there, but there's nobody turning children in pain into teachers. And the impact of these children in teaching the world is so profound that people do come forward. And we're praying that more people will and say, hey, how do we get involved? How do we do this in our community? I do scholars and residents all over the place. How do we get you to come and speak? And that generates interest and, and funding because without the funding, we couldn't do anything. Is the funding currently your greatest challenge, your greatest barrier to growth? Or what, what are the remaining challenges ahead for this to reach the levels that you believe it should and, and can? You know, any not-for-profit will always tell you that funding is the greatest challenge. Frankly, that's always the case. But to me, it's really leadership. It's getting people behind you who believe in it, understand it, and are smart people who have the networking capabilities to help us reach that. When we started our program in Boston, a guy said, I'll send you a check for $50,000 to start the program because there was an article in the Boston Globe because we were featured on Good Morning America, et cetera, et cetera. I told this gentleman, a great guy, Cliff, I said, hold on to your check. Until I get leadership in Boston, I'm not going to start the program there. And thank God we got that right leadership and we got the right people. And then I was very happy to take his check. He is people. He is leadership. Everybody is busy. And the people who are the busiest are the best people. So getting people who, who understand that they do have capabilities, they can help us and introduce us into communities, into companies, into the networking and into hospitals. That's what we look for. We look for what we call the six M's. People help us with the, the management, the medical, the martial arts, the money, the media, and the, and the marketing of the program. Those are the best types of people. So the key is people, and of course, we always accept donations, and um, we'll probably always accept donations, <laughs> because it costs us about $500 a child per year to make the program work. And even though we have a lot of volunteers, because we're a very clinical program, we need to have the staff in the hospitals who are going to oversee that volunteer process, mm. because this can be done wrong. And there have been organizations that have mimicked the martial arts uh, therapy, and they do it, some of them are okay. None of them are as focused as we are, I can tell you, but that's a very biased statement. And frankly, some of them do it wrong. And, and martial arts can be done wrong, child who's immunosuppressed and has bone issues, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. we're very careful, we're very medically based, and everything we do is 1,000% vetted by the highest levels of the medical establishment. Rabbi Goldberg, just in, in concluding, you know, I know that if someone Googles your name or the organization, they'll find articles or features on CNN and USA Today. What have been some of the media outlets that you've 
been excited to be uh, engaged with? And of course, finally, how can people most effectively learn more about the program? And, and of course, if they'd like to get involved. I think it was very exciting for me to be in People magazine and the cover of a Me magazine in the same year. <laughs> I don't think that's ever been accomplished. <laughs> But really our website, which is kidskickingcancer.org, there's a ton of articles and you know, all types of features, Today Show and Top 10 CNN Hero Show and Early Show, Good Morning America. And 99% of that was done without a PR person because the children are so powerful. I'm just a good looking tall guy in front of the organization. <laughs> but the kids are the real power. And when you allow these children to feel that power, it really does illuminate the planet. Rabbi Eli Melech Goldberg, Rabbi G, Rabbi G, perhaps for the greatness of this incredible organization, this incredible mission, and the greatness of these kids who are lighting up the world, as you say. Thank you very, very much for joining us. My great pleasure, Rabbi Kay, and have a wonderful Shabbat. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.